Will the pandemic nostalgia bubble burst? More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Build your own ZX81. Wing leader lives. Earthbound secrets revealed. And the pandemic nostalgia bubble and will it burst? All this and our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, without a doubt, some of the most important computers ever to come out of Britain were the predecessors to the ZX Spectrum. The ZX80 and 81 represented the opportunity for home users to bring the computing experience home and offered the opportunity for younger aspiring coders to get their feet wet with a bit of physical assembly before moving on to, well, assembly language. Uh, Neil, did you know anyone with a ZX80 or 81 growing up? I know that by the time you and I were bopping around the schoolyard, they'd been supplanted by the Spectrum. Yeah, exactly that. By the time I was getting my first computer, those early Sinclair micros, they were they were old hat already by then. And convenience was king. So mine was an Amstrad CPC. That was my first micro, which not only did I not have to build myself, it only had one single power plug. The monitor mm. plugged in and then the machine relayed off of that. So it was really built with convenience in mind. Um, even a complete Luddite like myself could get it working. <laughs> it was, it was, and quite rightly too, this is the way things had to move on if the masses were to be persuaded to bring these things into their homes. It had to be simple. So I did see ZX80s and 81s, but they were gathering dust on the shelves of friends. They'd all progressed onto the spectrum, as you said earlier by then. That was the, the machine. Uh, and the industry as a whole had really moved on from kits. But it did serve its purpose. Um, it kept the price down massively. You could buy the ZX81, for example, in kit form for £49.95, so under £50 for a working computer. Well, working once you've built it. Um, or 69 Yeah, hopefully. 69 <laughs> for the for the built price, which is still incredibly cheap for a computer. Um, obviously, it, it, it only had, what was it, 1K of RAM, and you would stick a, a 16K RAM pack on the back which was really a necessity. So it cost a little bit more than that to get a really usable computer, but still an incredibly low point of entry uh, for computers yeah. at the time. Yeah, I mean, these, these machines were, were really priced to sell. Uh, to me, the ZX80 is the more iconic machine in terms of the case with that white case and blue keys. But the ZX81 really set the stage for the Spectrum. Uh, speaking of the ZX81, a, a few weeks ago, Neil, you mentioned that you'd been sent an original ZX81 kit, but you were loath to put it together because of how comparatively few examples of non-assembled kits are left out there. Well, if you have a hankering to put together a ZX81 without taking an unassembled original out of circulation, check this out. Subreddit user Paul, aka Hermski, has queued us in on a new video project by YouTuber The Retro Shack, in which he uses a PCB designed by Alejandro Valero Sebastian and 100% new parts to recreate a main board for a ZX81. Now, Neil, this is something we're seeing more and more of these days. It is, and yes, I do have that kit, and I would hold it up if I'd remembered to bring it up to the desk and show you, but you wouldn't see it anyway if you were listening on the, on audio, so you're not missing out on anything, don't worry. But it is as good as new. It, it was amazing to open on a recent unboxing video this ZX81 and see all the capacitors, all the chips, the boards, everything, all in their little packets, as new as you would have got it off the shelf. 
back in the day. It was a real time capsule. And um, I did put the feelers out there and the general consensus from people on an online vote was that it should it should remain in kit form and I should display it in kit form, which um, I have to say, I think I agree with because I do have built ZX81s mm-hmm. and uh, these things were made to be built. So it must be pretty rare to find unbuilt one, it, unless there's a big warehouse somewhere that's still full of <laughs> new old stock. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there is, but it will remain in kit form and I'll build a little display to show it off here. With regards to other boards, uh, it is something I've done myself, building uh, the A500++ board from scratch. That was the recreated Amiga 500+. You've got the re-Amiga 1200, recreation of the 1200 board. I know um, at least a couple of people who have done similar projects um, with the newly printed A2000 board that's out there. There's a Jupiter Ace board in the works for all those Jupiter Ace fans. Uh, Basically, if you can think of a system, there's likely someone out there mapping out the traces and trying to recreate their favorite computer. Even my humble Amstrad CPC has a recreated board and you can just drop that in the original case. It's made to the Mm. same proportions. So... Yeah, of course, you do still need to farm any custom chips for these things, though, uh, until replacements are created. And those are cropping up everywhere through the use of Arduinos and FPGAs and things like that. So there's really nothing holding you back, John. Yeah, yeah. So you have some experience with this. You did the A500++ board. Um, how, How was the experience? Did you enjoy it? It was good. It was made enjoyable because I made sure I'd block the time out to enjoy it and do it. Right. You don't want to do these things in a hurry. So mm-hmm. as long as you've set plenty of time aside, you've got all the parts laid out and ready to go. You're not going to get any nasty surprises halfway through and think, well, I need to order that capacitor now, which I haven't got. So it's all about the prep work, a nice big pot of coffee. Not so much that it makes your soldering hand shake. You don't want to get the, the <laughs> coffee jitters. That's important. Right. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it's immensely satisfying when you build something like this. And when you see the board boot up and turn on for the first time, it really is very rewarding. Uh, I can only imagine how rewarding it would be if you were like uh, Rob Taylor, who created the A500++ board, to, to create mm-hmm. it from scratch and then build it and then see it. That's a, that's a step up again. Really great work by the people who do this stuff. So yeah, worth worth every year that you've sacrificed inhaling solder fumes to get the skills <laughs> and to make it happen john how about you would you would you do this i don't think so i mean oh, okay. you, you, you need a steady hand you need the right equipment you probably need a soldering iron that and i did say solder sorry sorry that's just how we do it um you need one that probably costs more than ten dollars that you picked up you know a radio shack but most importantly you need an almost infinite amount of patience to be able to attach these components and do all the testing necessary to make sure everything is operating correctly. Um, you, like you said, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling when you fire up one of these boards and it, and it goes right away. It's a less than wonderful feeling once you've put all the components in place and you turn it on and you get nothing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that's that's I have a feeling that I'd be doing a lot of that. You know, re- recapping CRTs is about as far into soldering as I get, and I even try to avoid that uh, whenever I can. So it's it's not for me, but I definitely can see the appeal for people who really want to get in there and and work on on their soldering skills and pretend. You know, not really even pretending because you're really doing it. You're assembling this machine to play on. So uh, here's a question. We've seen new PCBs for the Amigas and now the ZX81. You've talked about several of the other ones. Um, Are there any retro machines left that you'd like to see reborn in kit form? 
Well, um, I'm sure someone will comment if this already exists. I haven't seen it personally, but I'd love to see a really simplified modern 486 PC project. So something that lets you build an authentic 486 rig with the original Intel 486 chip or AMD or or whatever you want to put in there. Um, But so that it's been as cost reduced as possible using modern components while retaining total compatibility because I love DOSBox and I love emulators but I think a, a really pure little 486 system maybe with a couple of ISA slots that you can mm-hmm. drop into an ITX case uh, I'd love to put that together I think that would be a really nice thing yeah, How yeah, yeah you, don't, would you be interested in that yeah absolutely especially if I could put an FPGA in that ISA slot <laughs> oh yeah the um, FPGA uh, video cards we were right, talking about yeah it'd exactly. be a great pairing yeah um, I'd love to see you know a very basic Pong system in kit form. Uh, I think I could handle the soldering requirements, or you could even do it where all the components just snapped on. You know, they have those those breadboards now, and you can market it as an educational electronics kit for kids. Uh, in fact, I'm sure there's a way that you could integrate it in with a Pi or something like that somehow, so you could teach a bit of programming and market it together as a video game console that you build, you code for, and you play. You cover all the bases. Yeah, I really like that that idea. It's like those old electronics bo- project box kits you could buy right. as a kid to teach you about electronics. To do it with the Pong machine, love the idea of things snapping in rather than soldering because that just mm-hmm. eliminates that side of things and you're just focused in on the electronics. Mm-hmm. What's going onto this board? Why? Um, you could even maybe have instructions that tell you to put the components on in such an order that you understand how they work together rather than this goes here, this goes here, and then magically it all works together. So I think that would be a great idea. I'd love to see that, yeah. Yeah, so if you're interested in building a ZX81 of your very own, uh, make sure you check out the video from the Retro Shack linked to in the show notes. Amiga OS 3.2 is now in stock at RetroRewind.ca. Our friends when it comes to kitting out your Commodore computers with everything that you could possibly need. Flash carts, diagnostic harnesses, kernel switches. John, they've even got dip chip straightening tools that you can, you can drop your chips into and you just give them a squeeze and it straightens up all of those legs that you've accidentally bent when you've pulled <laughs> them out of the socket. We've all done it. We've all done it. Yes. And there's new products appearing every week on their website, RetroRewind.ca. And we'd like to say a big thank you to Frank and the boys who run the operation. So uh, thank you very much. Do check out their website. And they're so kind in supporting their, this show every week. We really do appreciate it. So thank you for that. And thank you for serving the retro community. RetroRewind.ca. The next story this week, John, is one for Wing Commander fans, or indeed any sci-fi gaming fans, really. Wing Commander was a really important game for the IBM PC in the early 90s, as I recall it. First appearing in 1990 on MS-DOS, it was really a showcase for VGA graphics and Sound Blaster sound, um, all of those upgrades that you would have had in a cutting-edge PC at the time. It combined pre-rendered faux 3D sprites. Um, They were the spaceships flying around, so they weren't really 3D, they were sprites. And that enabled the game to get a much more detailed look than could be achieved with polygons at the time, which would have been the alternative, within a 3D space flight simulator. The strapline on the box was the 3D space combat simulator. That's how it marketed itself. And the game, it looked so good that it simply used an in-game screenshot on the front cover. A game that could actually sell itself on the merits of its own screenshot in 1990, John, and not an arcade screenshot masquerading as an 8-bit micro 
What a revolution. <laughs> We're talking to you, Amiga Outrun. <laughs> yes, exactly that. And uh, this technique of 3D worlds with 2D sprites within them, it was used to great effect, especially in that period in, in many, many games. I remember, for example, the Lucas uh, Games flight simulators like Battlehawks 1942. It did that in a very similar way to Wing Commander, and that was back in 1988. There, w- there will be earlier examples and the trend continued on and on all the way into the hardware 3D acceleration um, period on the N64 in Mario Kart 64. The carts were sprites while the world was 3D and the trees, I think, were sprites. The pedestrians in Carmageddon, it was widespread. There's lots and lots of examples, but it just worked particularly well in Wing Commander. I think it was a great design choice and it was really well executed. John, were you a fan of the Wing Commander series? You know, even though it did appear on both the Super Nintendo and the Mega Drive, uh, this is one of those games. Yeah, Yeah, eventually. Uh, It's one of those games that just passed me by originally. Uh, I never saw it to rent. I don't think that I saw it when I would rummage around uh, in carts at uh, pawn shops or garage sales. But I've been introduced to it through doing Amigos and and playing it on the Amiga. I'll tell you this, Neil. uh, Don't try and run Wing Commander on an A500. (laughs) It it runs at about one and a half frames per second. It is not a pretty sight. Uh, Truth be told, I wish I'd known about the Wing Commander series when I was growing up. Uh, I love the way that it interweaves the, the light sim element with arcade action. And you've got this linear story that's uh, interwoven into one cohesive experience. Uh, I did play a bunch of space games on various machines. Uh, in fact, if I were hard-pressed to name a favorite genre other than JRPG, it would probably be space games. Yeah. Um, it's funny you should mention the A500 because I first played Wing Commander when I picked it up at a computer trade show on the A500, mm. unaccelerated, had a second disk drive and an extra 512K of RAM. But processor-wise, it was bog-standard. And I have such fond memories of playing it on the A500. I go back now, and it, yes, you're right, the frame rate is awful. You've got much fewer colors than you would get on the PC's 256-color version. But I just have really great fond memories of discovering Wing Commander, and it, it kept my Amiga going my Amiga ownership going for a while because I fooled myself into going, yeah, yeah, I know the PC can do this, but my Amiga can do this too. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the <laughs> but, problems with being spoiled for choice. If you're uh, running something on, especially through emulation, on an A500 and it's chugging along, you just flip a switch and then you've got an A4000T or something. And, exactly and that. Back in the day, you didn't have that choice. And so you, and, and again, Wing Commander was such an original game at the time. There was really nothing else like it that I can definitely understand, even with the, with the slower frame rate which you know you, you probably weren't even aware that it wasn't running optimally uh they, it could still be a lot of fun yeah yeah but yeah. judging by what you've just said there space games in general are your bag if not this one yeah yeah totally uh i love the exploration aspect yeah. of space games uh, i'm a big star trek guy any any game that gives you the chance to explore the galaxy and discover new things i'm on board with uh, you know the fact that space real space is just so so big and in many ways it represents the limitlessness of knowledge and the limitlessness of our own uh, possible existence uh, sorry sorry neil if i go any further i'm going to get way too existential for this podcast how about you what draws you to space games yeah i think a lot of people feel the same way it, it, 
this really explains also the buzz that surrounded No Man's Sky when that oh, was yeah. being hyped. Yes. You know, the whole thought that the, the universe is the ultimate sandbox. It's, it's huge. You can't reach its limits. You can explore far and wide. It's very, very appealing as a gamer. And that goes all the way back to the granddaddy of them all, Elite, of course. Uh, but sometimes you do also want a bit more excitement, and that's where space combat comes into it in games like X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, which was an absolute classic. And the topic of this story, Wing Commander. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, with Wing Commander, I think it's the, the combination of the trading of Elite, the ability to land on and explore planets like No Man's Sky, plus the mission-based plot progression of Wing Commander would pretty much be my perfect space game. And speaking of Wing Commander and its creator, I guess maybe that was the promise, the original promise of Star Citizen, you know, several decades ago, it seems like when it was first pitched to the gaming community at large. Of course, we're all aware of the dramatic saga of that particular game and its community, which still continues to this day. Oh yeah, that's a whole new story in itself. One day, mm -hmm. one day we'll get to announce that Star Citizen, I hope, has been released. But, right. <laughs> um, who knows when the hell that's going to be. But uh, yeah, you mentioned Chris Roberts. Uh, so he made the original Wing Commander and it was published by Origin. Do you know what else Origin also published, John? Was it Ultima Neon? That's right, that's right. They also <laughs> did Ultima. And um, Wing Commander, it seemed to serve that cusp of technical innovation through the 90s it wowed us with its 256 colors on the pc when it first came out and it had this music system that uh, would change the music according to what was happening on the screen that was really dynamic and nice in later uh, version uh, games in the series it gave us fmv spread over multiple cds from wing commander 3 we had mark hamill of luke skywalker fa uh, fame acting mm -hmm. in it and um, the games all wove storylines that got us really invested in the characters and made us want to protect our fellow crew members who flew out with us. Uh, I think the only other game like that that got me invested in my characters was probably Cannon Fodder. Um, you know, and, and these are the two games. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, Wing Commander had the 21-gun salute um, at your funeral. So you'd, you'd watch through that and salute the screen and get all mm. emotional mm -hmm. and likewise cannon fodder had the hill of fallen heroes with all the little two tombstones on them real tear tear jerkers john tear jerkers yeah yeah both of those are great examples of how uh you know it, i remember being struck uh, especially with the funeral scenes in wing commander how they blast your coffin out into space and all that uh just just how they they humanized the npcs that were lost in battle it wasn't just little sprites that flickered and then disappeared like like in most games Right now, there are hundreds of virtual coffins of me floating around in space, John. <laughs> yeah, somewhere out there. <laughs> so on, on to the, the story itself. Um, we've been riffing on Wing Commander, but uh, it's unsurprising that a game that's made such an impact on people is getting a fan remake, and it comes in the form of Wing Leader. Uh, developer and artist Howie Day showcased some updated footage this week on Twitter on the remake that he's been working on. Started as a passion project to recreate one of his favorite childhood games in Uni Unity he's made this in. And um, it's blossomed in, in no small part to his artistic talents. He's a really talented, artistic, uh, a talented artist who just happens to be really good at programming as well. Wow. And he, he hopes to create a single player campaign although he has hinted at multiplayer options in past interviews. I think um, Vintage is the New Old is a website that I went to and saw an interview from 2019 by him, and he talks about his aspirations back then to make it multiplayer. Um, of course, it's updated for modern machines, so 
it still uses that sprite technique instead of polygon ships which is nice it, that gives it a real authenticity and a real callback to the original game but instead of i think originally you had about 32 sprites per ship it uses hundreds over 500 sprites per ship oh so you get gosh, a real wow. smooth rotation um millions of colors of course not 256 colors it, it looks great and hopefully, if you're watching the video version of this podcast, Duncan can pop up some footage now of the rolling demo. Looks really great, really authentic. It's absolute carnage, in fact. When the battles start get going, there's space debris flying all over the place. And I think Howard's done an incredible job of capturing, at least on the face of it, because it's a rolling demo, I haven't got to play it firsthand, uh, the special source, really, that made the original game so enjoyable and so cinematic. Yeah, I, I, I watched this and I, I've got to say it looks amazing. Uh, I'm a sucker for modern games that keep the retro feel while updating the amount of sprites, like you said, on screen, reducing slowdown and flicker and things like that. And if the game plays as well as this demo looks, it's going to be a day one purchase for me. Um, so uh, speaking of that, when can we get this, Neil? Well, uh, we've mentioned the rolling demo there, which that actually runs in real time right in your browser using something called Unity WebGL. So there's just a website link in the show notes you can click on and you'll see the game running in real time on your device. It doesn't need a very powerful computer to run it, so you should all get a good experience if you follow that link. Now, I reached out to the developer, Howard, for comment. Uh, he got back to me just this morning and he said that he started this project about three years ago in 2019. He started it because he loved Wing Commander so much. He described the series to me as the anthem of his childhood. Uh, and also what inspired him to start the project was seeing the artwork of a chap called Arn, also known as Android Arts. Uh, this guy made lots of concept art based on the game in a kind of hand-painted style. Lots of really nice images of the ships from the game. Um, great images and they inspired Howard so much that he challenged himself to make one of the ships called the Hornet and he said it all snowballed from there so he, he decided to knock something up in Unity a 3D model and it just snowballed um, at the moment he says his fear of character artwork and detailed interiors is delaying his progress but he has got back on track because he's found places where he can buy those assets it's very much a one-man development by the way mm. um, but he is reaching out and buying assets to um, fill the gap in what well what he feels is a skill skills gap he's obviously a really very talented guy but for the character artwork for the interiors he's he's now paying to get those assets while continuing to work on the game he is unable to give a firm release date at the, at the moment. So I think it's just a question of following his YouTube channel, following his Twitter where he shares videos every now and then, and uh, sharing words of encouragement with him. If you like what you see, let's all go and give him a big twerk community hug until he <laughs> finishes, finishes it, damn it. Let's get this finished. Show him that we want it. So if you, like me, are fed up with waiting for Chris Roberts' other game, Star Citizen, a game I backed so long ago that the email address I did it with doesn't exist anymore, and I don't even know if I'll be able to access the game when it's been <laughs> released, then maybe this game, Wing Leader, will pass the time for you, um, give you that Wing Commander hit that you want, and all the links are in the show notes to check it out. And thank you very much, Howard, for taking the time to talk to me this morning. Neil. It's time for another gaming lost and found story. Always one of my favorite topics for the show. No matter what your favorite video game is, it's always a dream come true when unreleased material is found, whether it's unused artwork, assets, or even entire levels. 
In some cases, it can almost seem like a sequel has materialized before your eyes. Neil, do you have any favorite games that have had any discoveries like these since they were published? Uh, was there ever a secret 23rd dungeon ever found in Ultima 6? Well, a game that um, I was reading about recently that surprisingly kept its secrets for an incredibly long time is Punch-Out. Um, on the face of it, obviously a very simple boxing game that you may have enjoyed in the arcades or on your NES. Mm -hmm. But it turns out there are certain things that happen in the game that, um, well, people were aware of, but they were never quite sure why these things happen. So one example is when you fight against uh, the, the opponent Piston Honda, sometimes you can knock him out with a single blow. And likewise with Bald Bull, when he charges, charges at you, sometimes you can counterattack and hit him, and with a single blow you'll knock him out. But nobody was quite sure how, what the timing was how you managed to recreate this counterattack, and that was until 2016 when somebody noticed in the background there's a single bearded spectator he doesn't move doesn't move a single pixel until he does <laughs> and when this little bearded face ducks he just moves down a couple of pixels when he does that's when you know you can deliver the one punch knockout and nobody noticed this until 2016 nobody noticed you could put this move together until decades later it's incredible it's such a popular game as well it's amazing that that wasn't spotted sooner um yeah the power of the beard john <laughs> the, the power of the beard sounds like a great name for a series <laughs> i look for that soon coming out of the cave neil get on it well this particular case of lost and found has a special place in my heart you know me and you know my love of japanese role-playing games uh, they were the first genre of games i could tell myself i was good at they drew me in in ways that other video games never did, and there's one game in particular that truly stands out from the genre, and that is the Super Nintendo cult classic Earthbound. Uh, instead of your typical sword and sorcery fantasy setting, Earthbound was set in the present day and featured kids, Neil. Kids like me, except I was 25 when I played it for the first time. <laughs> Uh, and now, after almost 30 years, more of the game has been discovered. This is a classic example of a story we've heard so many times before. Uh, one of the game's English translators, uh, Marcus Lindblom, recently discovered a disc while cleaning out his attic, where, which he originally supposed he'd accidentally ruined by wiping it to save some other files too when he was younger. But he sent it to the Video Game History Foundation on a wing and a prayer to see if they could manage to recover the data. Now... Here's the good news. They were able to. So, unfortunately, nothing earth-shattering was found, but there were some amusing things included in the original dialogue that got cut by North American censors, such as a side quest where you have to travel to a beach to get a quote-unquote interesting oil massage uh, that powers up your character. Uh, all of this fits in part and parcel with the wacky, offbeat humor the game is famous for. Uh, Neil, did you ever play Earthbound? Yeah, I didn't get around to playing it until later years in emulation. Because uh, if you want to play it with real hardware now, you are going to be paying top dollar for it, though, mm -hmm. because it's such a popular and, and well-regarded game. Uh, there's one original list is on eBay right now for £1,100. A huge amount of money for a game cartridge. Oh, yeah. But because of its popularity, there's plenty of repros out there, which you can pick up for about £20 each. Or you can use an EverDrive, of course. So there's plenty of ways of playing it on real hardware. But... Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was cutesy, but it had enough humor in it to see me through that because normally I enjoy a much more gritty realism to my RPGs, the Western style sure. more than the Japanese style. But the humor saw me through that, so I did enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and, and speaking of, sorry, recovering data, I was just thinking while you were talking about um, 
he discovered the disc recently i covered this usb disc drive on the channel which uh lets you read amiga discs on mm -hmm. a pc and off the back of that i've posted that off just today to um the uh oh, mike daly sorry his name slipped my mind there mike daly who made lemmings and grand theft auto because he's got a floppy disk on which he thinks he has his original lemmings editor software oh, which wow. he wrote but it's an Amiga disc. He's got no way of getting it off there. So I said, look, I'll post you the drive and, and we'll see. So watch this space. Maybe we'll see an original Lemmings um, level editor appear soon. That hopefully. would truly be a newsworthy story for the show. So hopefully <laughs> hopefully that'll pan out. Um, one thing that does give me hope, just like you said, is that maybe some other folks with old discs in the loft might hear the, uh, about this story and then send any game files they thought might be corrupt or lost over to the Video Game History Foundation. Um, Neil, can you think of any games offhand besides <laughs> Lemmings Level Editor that you'd like to see some some extra content discovered for? Um, yeah, I mean, we were kind of spoiled in the 8 and 16-bit era, particularly on the microcomputers, because if a game was popular, it would soon be followed up very quickly with an expansion pack. So we were pretty well served in that respect. If the demand was there, it was generally met. Uh, but something I always loved and enjoyed was behind-the-scenes looks at games. And when we moved into the CD-ROM era, I loved how some developers would use spare space on the CDs because before we got to seven, eight, nine CD-sized games, we had games which were originally floppy disk games and they were just put onto CD maybe with a bit of extra soundtrack. So there was loads of spare capacity on the CDs. And we'd end up with things like behind-the-scenes movies maybe in a stamp-sized quick-time video or a real-time video, but they were there nonetheless. And you got to see, for example, I think on my Leisure Suit Larry collection CD and my Ultima collection CDs, there were interviews with the game devs and you could hear stories about design decisions and things that were cut from the final game. So it's a bit much to expect to find documentary videos on floppy disks, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I really enjoyed finding those on CDs. Um, yeah, so... With that regard, going beyond floppy disks, if there are any old game devs out there who might have any old VHS tapes or camcorder tapes that are sat on the shelf from their development days, then I would urge them to digitize them and share them with us because they would be really fascinating to see. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, thanks to the data recovery efforts of organizations like the Video Game History Foundation, hopefully we'll be able to discover uh, many more uh, things like this in the years to come. If you'd like to see a full explanation of what was recovered in the process of getting those files off the disk, check out the video in the show notes from the Video Game History Foundation. And thank you to subreddit user Devolution for submitting this story. Amiga Forever is your one-stop shop for Amiga emulation with ease. I was looking at the various editions on their website this week, John, and it's the plus edition of the Amiga Forever package that caught my eye. This is uh, over on AmigaForever.com, by the way. And within the plus edition, you get a portable environment to run the whole kit and caboodle from uh, on a DVD or from a USB stick with no underlying OS required. So maybe you've got an old Dell desktop kicking around the kind that you find in the corner of every office and there must be a lot of offices getting cleared out right now there must be lots yeah. of old Dell desktops <laughs> kicking around look out for them because what you can do is you can set it up and you can plug in an Amiga Forever prepared USB stick in the back of it it will boot right up seamlessly as an Amiga and just take you straight back in time there's no windows there's nothing popping up and uh, interrupting that experience it's straight into an Amiga experience guarantee you john the gray hairs will vanish instantly you'll be a kid again in no time <laughs> can it can it grow hair neil 
Because if it uh, does, that, I'm that, on board. That, that's the premium edition. I'm just talking oh, about Oh, okay. The I'll have edition. to upgrade. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd like to say a big, big thank you to AmigaForever.com for supporting the show and the great work that they do in bringing the Amiga to the masses. Let's talk about nostalgia, John. <laughs> Isn't that all we do here, Neil? <laughs> pretty, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. But um, nostalgia as the subject itself rather than nostalgic things. It's something that I often hear come up, and you might do too, and it's usually in the context of it won't last or how long do you think people will be interested in these old computers? You know, the bubble has to burst is, is the general opinion that mm-hmm. keeps coming back to me. And it just keeps rumbling on nostalgia will keep rumbling on that is because human nature it's it's within all of us to be nostalgic to one degree or another particularly in times when we need comfort and a global pandemic has certainly been one of those times a combination of uncertainty and for some certainly not everyone and uh, we we do salute our key workers out there who've been keeping the world turning but for some it's also meant extra free time while being stuck at home in lockdowns And as a result of this, the BBC are reporting a surge in nostalgic hobbies, in particular the good old Hornby train sets. John, do you have time for other nostalgic hobbies outside of retro gaming, such as uh, model railways, perhaps? Neil, I would love nothing more than to get way into model trains. <laughs> uh, one of the old men on my street had a uh, a full-scale model of the town that we lived in in his garage. Uh, and I was mesmerized at whenever I would go over there. But I never actually took the plunge with it because, uh, as you may be aware, model trains are not a cheap hobby to get into. <laughs> you run into real money real quick. Um, but maybe that's another thing I can look forward to in retirement. Um, my nostalgic hobby of choice is actually collecting old penguin paperbacks. Uh, these are the ones with the questionable cover artwork, uh, browning pages. They've got binding so brittle now that the books literally fall apart as I'm reading them. Uh, whenever I'm at a bookshop, I always pick up one or two or three. Uh, just having them on the shelves reminds me of perusing the local library stacks growing up. That's my, that's my nostalgic hobby. How about you, Neil? Really nice, and I bet that's a good smelling hobby as well. You oh yes, the there's nothing the like the, the there's nothing like the smell of an of an old an old musty paperback, and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lovely. Um, for me, probably discovering new music outside of the retro stuff, which I do a huge amount of. Um, yeah, it's always been something I enjoyed as a hobby. Accelerated hugely by Napster, which we talked about last week. I use it to relax, to de-stress. Um, it's a meditation, really, listening mm-hmm. to music. I really love it. I've got more pairs of headphones than I care to count kicking around in all the spots where I like to put my feet up and, and listen to music. Um, and more recently, uh, collecting vinyl. Although mm. that does bring me full circle again because most of the vinyl that I've been buying is video game soundtracks. So, <laughs> for example, I just took delivery of a Space Quest soundtrack on, on double vinyl, which is a really nice way to listen to it. Now, according to this BBC article, model railway makers Hornby have reported a massive jump in sales. That's included also, as well as the model railways, uh, Scalectrics um, Hornby own. They've, they've seen a 28% jump in Scalectrics sales, which they also produce. So they say that one third of sales is going to what they class as kidults the kidult demographic adults purchasing what they class as children's toys. Although, as you mentioned earlier, model railways are not a cheap hobby no um i I don't think many there are of course the toy type ones the much cheaper model railways but when you think of hornby railways 
Is that a well-known brand in the U.S., Hornby? It's not. We have Lionel. Okay. That's sort of the Hornby of the U.S. But like you said, whenever you think of the train, you don't think about just the train going around the track. You think of all the carefully sculpted landscapes and the, and the, and the houses and everything. And uh, it it is uh, when you go into a hobby shop and you see what people are charging for these things, you, you, you tend to get a, some wallet shock for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's a bit of a simplification to say it's adults purchasing children's toys. Um, in the BBC News stories, that they, they chat to Birkenscott model village owner, Brian Newman-Smith. And he said the following. He says, people had Lego, they had trains and scale electrics. But when they got married and had children, that all dropped off. Now, with all the time to spare, they've gone back into modeling, whether it's aircraft, trains, planes, you name it. And people come here to the model village to see what we've got and it inspires them. So they go off and uh, get back into these things. I haven't seen them at the model village. At this point, I'm tempted to quote a line about the model village from the movie Hot Fuzz, but um, it wouldn't be suitable for our audience, John. <laughs> so we'll move on swiftly. And while Brian there has some very traditional views on the route to nostalgia, I, I think the trajectory roughly applies to us retro tech enthusiasts too. You only need to look at the number of arcades popping up during lockdown now, certainly around the UK, so many of them popping up and being built to cater to those nostalgic gamers. For me, John, work didn't really cease throughout the pandemic. I, I work in isolation. I'm self-employed. I had to keep the paychecks coming in. So um, if anything, I've worked harder than ever through the pandemic. And of course, I'm surrounded by nostalgia every day. So I'm not really the best case study to ask you, about this. Your, your, your work and trade is nostalgia. <laughs> exactly exactly if i'm not being nostalgic i'm not doing <laughs> i'm not doing my job so <laughs> i'm the wrong person to ask um likewise to you but i will ask anyway have you found the pandemic or lockdowns have made you pine for anything else nostalgic or comforting maybe an old movie certain food anything to make a stressful situation more manageable yeah i i think so you know our lockdowns uh weren't quite to the extent uh, as as yours in terms of the amount of time that i actually spent in the house in fact uh, as soon as uh, they canceled school for the rest of the year uh, i started a full-time job in which i commuted into an office just to have something to fill my days with okay. so uh <laughs> but uh i do think that when whenever i would start to feel stress regarding all of the things that were going on i would tune into some baseball uh baseball was one of the okay. first sports to come back after the complete and total lockdown in the states ended here about a year ago um of course there were no fans in the stands so teams sold the right to have a photo of yourself blown up and printed on cardboard to put in the seats which was quite amusing um once they got a handle on how to properly pipe in the fake crowd noise it well well, it was okay. I mean, nothing beats watching a sports event on TV with a rambunctious crowd, but it was a real comfort at that time just to tune into a game and watch something that I remembered watching every summer of my life and hear the announcers call the game just like always. Uh, the, you know, the one constant through all the years, Neil, has been baseball. Uh, America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time, this field, this game. It's a part of our past, Neil. It reminds us of all that was once good and that could be again. Was that Field of Dreams, John? Are you quoting the movie? <laughs> People will come, Neil. People will come. 
That's my motto here, building the cave. Uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Hopefully people and not ghosts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, sports is a good one. We've currently got the European football tournament taking place. It usually happens every four years. It was delayed a year, but it's, it's now happening. And I think it's a really welcome distraction for a lot of people at the moment, um, mm-hmm. at least until the home nations get knocked out. But <laughs> we're enjoying it so far. So anyway, model railways, scale electrics, they are in Make sure to capitalise on the massive availability of railway track at low prices as people return to the office and get bored of their new hobbies in a few months' time. Ready for the next nostalgia wave. That's right. I'm sure it will come. All right, Neil. Last week's community question of the week was, whether streaming or a la carte, what would persuade you to buy into a retro gaming ecosystem? And we got some uh, good responses here. The first one comes from Do Communication 855 He says, uh, the ability to download any game for any home microsystem that can be played on original hardware for a price, that means I don't have to think too carefully about it. So around 99p. I'd want access to a carbon copy of the original with downloadable or printable manuals and box art. I'd also want options to include the cracking group demo screens for pirate versions. Let's be honest, we all remember those. So Yeah, that's a nice idea. Something I've thought about doing here with my collection is um uh, it would probably need a volunteer to help me out time wise, but to scan all of the box art, especially of the cassette tape, the eight bit cassette games, scan the tape, scan the instructions and the inlay and make that available. I don't know where I sit copyright wise. That's probably illegal to scan those and make them available, but I'd love to find a way to legally be able to give people access to that over the internet to log onto a website and just browse through all of the old Spectrum and Amstrad games and look just look at the cover art right right maybe even download a wave file of the tape if you wanted to go that far that would probably be going way too far but i'd love to find a way to legally be able to do that yeah Mm -hmm. uh ken mang says at this point a large disposable income (laughs) is what he needs (laughs) seriously i would love to have a few multi-arcade cabinets one for each of the several common control schemes so a driving cabinet a trackball cabinet Uh, as for consoles the official minis are good but they need some sort of digital store to purchase additional titles of course whether with arcade or consoles the price for the game should be reasonable i love it he hasn't got an arcade cabinet yet but he's already on that slippery slope of well if i get one for horizontal gaming i'm gonna need a vertical setup i'm gonna need a spinner a Mm -hmm. trackball a steering wheel and before you know it you've got seven arcades yeah that's right you're exactly right uh and finally reading glasses man says Anything that looks like my memories feels like my memories. He says, I can even recall how the feel of the power switch on my Commodore 64 felt and sounds like my memories. The click of the keys, the crunch of the tape bay or the drive door. Basically something that can take me back to my childhood while not costing so much. I have to really try really hard to justify the cost to my wife has to be a winner. <laughs> well, that's that's nostalgia summed up beautifully, isn't it? Yeah. If it takes you back there, however it does it, whether it's the smell of a Penguin book, uh, a warm PSU on a Commodore 64, whatever it is, that's nostalgia, and that's all we want. Yeah, so thank you to everybody for writing in your responses for our community question of the week. This week's community question is, what old hobby have you rediscovered or new hobby have you started during the pandemic? So please post your responses in the This Week in Retro subreddit, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. Do you know what my new hobby was? What? 
started a podcast with you. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I think that's, it's been a pretty fruitful new hobby. <laughs> Hopefully it won't end once the pandemic ends. We're coming up on 40 episodes, aren't we? Is that today? We or? passed the milestone last week with little fanfare. Oh, this week. is Yeah, this is 41. So, But we're, okay. we're closing in on a year. Just a couple more. Well, months. we are 40, 41. Yeah. Well, I hope that you've been, you've enjoyed listening to the podcast so far, everyone. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Today's episode of This Week in Retro comes thanks to our partners at Anchor FM. Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be. That's right, Neil. We love Anchor. And that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.